0: John is an old man now, he's
1: followed Jesus for 60 years, he was just a young man when he said goodbye to his old life and he set out following Jesus, maybe in his early 20s, maybe a teenager when he made that decision. When he was a young man he was called by Jesus the son of thunder. Along with James' brother, he had his temper on the hair trigger, but the years have gone by. And now he's an old man, and it's the last decade, probably, of the first century. And things have changed for John. He's the only living apostle of Jesus. All the others have died, and they've died horrible deaths, violent deaths. And he's an old man and the last of those apostles of the 12 that follow Jesus. He lives in Ephesus. Ephesus is on the seaboard, the western seaboard of what we today call Turkey. And because he's so old and because he's so looked up to all around him, People admire him and they come to him for counseling. And it's a time when he's writing a lot of stuff. He writes first, second, third, John. He writes what some people call the Apocalypse and what we call the Book of Revelation. And it's at this time that he writes the Gospel of John, possibly. And so things have changed. And John is now writing to God's people. He's writing to us. And the breath of God is upon every page. And it's not long before he spends his last days and he meets his Lord. And as an old man, he writes to God's people and he writes to us. I'm going to ask Hannah to read our text of discussion this morning. A mic somewhere? Well, you come and stand close to me, Hannah.
0: (laughs) This is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. If we claim we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. My dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins, and not only our sins, but the sins of all the world.
1: Thank you, Hannah. There's a word that you won't find in the epistle, the first epistle of John, and it's the word repentance. And yet you cannot understand this letter unless you actually understand something about repentance. One of the strange things about this is that we call it a letter, but it doesn't look like a letter. There's no introduction. We're not even given the name of John. And there's no farewell, there's no tailing off of the letter. And so someone has said that what we have in 1 John is more a loving and anxious sermon. And it certainly comes across as that. Now he talks a lot about sin. And underlying almost everything that he says is this idea that we must have repented. Now the word repentance is a theological term and it means to change your mind and change the place you are and change your direction. So you're going one way and to repent means you turn this way. And so when John is talking about sin, he's talking to people and he assumes That they have repented and they've changed their mind about Jesus. And they changed their mind about sin. And now they want to live a life of holiness, which is pleasing to the Lord. And as I said, you don't find the word repent. But you cannot understand the epistle without understanding something of repentance. And the old timer, Thomas Watson said, repentance is a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. You see, when you come to Christ, you can't be just the same as what you were in the past. It's impossible for a person who's born again to live like a person who's not born again. Because, you see, we're different now. We've repented now, and we continue to repent. And you will, f- one of the interesting things that came to at least I think it's interesting, as I was developing the message and thinking about it this week. Here's John, and as far as the church fathers go and tradition goes, he was living in Ephesus. And he was a member, undoubtedly, of the church in Ephesus. And yet, through him, God speaks in Revelation 2 and says, I have this against you you have left your first love. The years have gone by. And the believers now are possibly second generation or even third generation, and they had lost their first love, even though John was with them. He was still alive. He was part of their membership, but they had left their first love, and that's a challenge to all of us. And so they have repented, and they're a repentant Community. It's not just something they did in the past. It's something that becomes part of and has become part of their lifestyle. Now, we talk about sin. The Bible talks about sin. We've read about sin this morning. What does it mean? There was a very famous American preacher by the name of Donald Barnhouse. And sometimes, he would try to give what he called the shortest definition of sin. And so what he would do is he would read Isaiah 53, verse 6, which says this, all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to... And we'll try that. Let's hear what you say. Some of you may remember the verse, so I'll say it, and I want you to tell me what the next few words are. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That's the shortest definition of sin. It means that we've gone the way that we want to go, not God's way. And that's sin. I want to approach the subject from two directions this morning. And the first is we find fine-sounding words Now, I mentioned before that John assumes certain things about his readers, and we might say he assumes certain things about us, here at Raleigh Street this morning. He assumes, for example, that his readers are saved. Because the reality is, ladies and gentlemen, is sometimes we just pretend believers and We pretend we're saved, we like the Christian lifestyle, we like the singing, we like the fellowship, we like belonging to a community, but we just pretend Christians. You may have heard the story about a particular young man and he really wanted to work in a zoo. He just loved the zoo, and he had applied a number of times, turned down. It so happened that their gorilla died and so the authorities in the zoo said, look, uh, a gorilla has died, but if you want a job here, what we'll do is put you in a gorilla suit and you pretend you're a gorilla until the real gorilla arrives. And so he, he said, yeah, he said, because I'd like to do that. And he was promised that he would get a permanent job if he did this role play. And so he pretended he was a gorilla, and that happened for quite a long time. And he would, if I can use the expression, ape, at being a gorilla suddenly one day he saw a lion bounding towards him and he looked very ferocious and this young man in a gorilla suit he got really frightened and he started to scream out and the lion said keep quiet or we'll get us, you'll get us both fired <laughs> you know. now, it's, it's easy to pretend and you come to a place like this and it's easy to look like you're a Christian but are you? Our Lord Jesus said, the door of opportunity one day will close and people will come and they'll knock at the door and they'll say, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he will say to them, I don't know you. And they'll say, we ate in your presence. We took the communion. You walked in our streets. We heard you preaching. And Jesus says, depart from me. I never knew you. And Paul, when he's writing to the church in Corinth, the second epistle, chapter 13, he said, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And we have to do that. And I would just ask on the authority of God's word, are you in the faith or are you a pretender? But John, when he's writing, he actually works on the assumption that his readers are true believers But it's always good to examine our faith and it's always good to make sure that we're saved. The second assumption that he has is that that we want to please our Savior because, you see, we're saved and we want to please our Savior. And so we aim to do what Jesus requires and at the same time we're very fragile and we are needing forgiveness. Christians never claim to be better than anybody else. Christians only claim to be sinners. Saved by the grace, the unmerited favor and kindness of God. But that's all we claim and it's nothing of ourselves. But our lives have been changed. (laughs) Again, as I was thinking about this message, I was thinking of John 3.16, which reads, and many of you will know this, you know it by heart. God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And John recorded those words in his book, The Gospel of John. When I was thinking about it, I remembered something that I read in a book by Sylvia Wright. Some of you all know the name. She was a New Zealander from uh, Manawaru, actually, near Te And she, she was a missionary nurse in India for a long time. And she said there was a meeting of the church, and it was just a quiet meeting, and people were giving their testimonies. They were talking about how they came to the Lord, and they gave a favorite verse. And there was a quiet man at the back, and they invited him forward to tell about his favorite verse. He said, well, I'll tell you my favorite verse. It's this. He said, I was walking along one of the streets of our big city, And there was an open-air meeting, and somebody called out, John 3.16. He said, I was immediately arrested because, you see, my name is John. I've had three wives, and I've got 16 children. Now, that brought him to Christ. Now, of course, most of you know that John 3.16 means it's a sentence that you find in the gospel written by John. And it is the gospel in a nutshell. And it's this, ladies and gentlemen, if you believe in Jesus, if you follow him, you are a believer and you're saved. You will never perish. You will never spend eternity without Christ, but you'll have everlasting life. And do you want it? Now, John had followed Jesus literally for about three years. And when the dust Soiled the feet of Jesus, the dust soiled the feet of John. And when the mud soiled the feet of Jesus, the mud soiled the feet of John. He was with John every step of the way for all that period of time. And he had heard his his master talk and teach many things, and you actually find it in the Gospel of John. He knew the material in what we call the synop. I won't go too far into this, but he knew the material in the synoptics, that is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he avoids mostly that kind of literature and stories, and you have a whole lot of other stories that they had missed out. Of course, they all talk about the resurrection. They talk about the death of Jesus. But he had heard the message, and so what he says is, this is the message we heard from Jesus, And now declare to you, God is light, and there is no darkness in him at all. You don't actually find that exact expression in the Gospels, but you certainly find that teaching. And so John says, I want you to know that God is light. When he shines his light on your life, it shows you for what you are, and also gives you hope. There are three key expressions that you actually... Three key expressions that you actually find. And the first is, God is light. And then he says, God is love. And he says, God is life. And you don't find the expression, God is life, but you find the teaching here. And so it's around these three themes that John actually writes this epistle. And of course, what we'd ask ourselves is, am I living according to what the Lord wants. Some of you have heard of the name Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is what they call a celebrity atheist. He was a professor at Oxford University. And in one of his books, Richard Dawkins says this, The Christian focus is overwhelmingly on sin, 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 sin. sin. What a nasty little preoccupation to have dominating your life. Another professor of Oxford University, John Lennox, replies to that. He actually debated Dawkins, and this is what he says in one of his books, and I've given you quite a large paragraph from his book. He has the statement of Dawkins in mind, and he, Professor Lennox, says, Sin, though it can certainly be very nasty, is not a little preoccupation. It is a major preoccupation that dominates the world. It is the root cause of tyrannies, wars, genocide, murder, exploitation, financial crises, injustice, of international, societal and family breakdown, of incalculable unhappiness due to lying, cheating, slander, bullying, cheating, domestic violence, and every form of crime, and so on, and on, and on, and on, and on. What is overwhelming, to use Dawkins' word, is the horrendous destructiveness of sin, daily forcing us to admit the bitter fact, as written long ago, that the wages of sin, and you know it's death, Most of us, if we got cancer, would find that fact at once becoming the central focus of our lives. Furthermore, we would expect the overwhelming focus of our doctors and consultants to be on that cancer in the hope of curing the disease and restoring us to health so that our focus could then be directed, no doubt, overwhelmingly elsewhere. And you get the point. Sin is dangerous. Sin is the cancer of the soul. Sin can rob us of joy. And sin certainly robs us of fellowship with God. And it has to be dealt with. When we get cancer of a serious type, it overwhelms us and we start thinking about it until it's cured. The remedy for sin is found in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so John, when he's writing to the church, he expects the people to be wanting to live a life, a battle against sin and overcoming sin, not dominated by it. And yet, sometimes our desire to not sin leads us to sin. You say, how does that matter? So he envisages three types of people and these people who are believers and they do want to please the Lord but that very desire forces them to make extreme statements or if you like, lies. And there are three lies that John addresses as he looks at, writes what we call chapter, chapter 1. And the first is, I have fellowship with God although I enjoy sinning. So in verse 6, you find this envisaged, and John says, we are lying. Now, John is a very black and white person, as you will find as you and we go through the series. But he says, we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. That can't happen. We will sin, and we'll find this, but we don't want to. We don't deliberately In contrast, but if we're living in the light, as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. And so he talks about this kind of person. Now, fellowship has the idea of closeness. You know, when I think of fellowship, I'm a bit hazy in what it means, but when I use the word closeness, I've got a better understanding. And so, John is actually saying, if we are close to God, we'll be close to each other. And by implication, if we are far from God by sin, then we will probably be far from each other. Because you see, forgiveness unites us. The commonality unites us. Now the second lie that John has in mind is the lie of the person who says, there's no sin in me if we claim we have no sin we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth so no one can say says john now you can see what john is saying he's going to give us some certain tests so that we can see hey this is the standard and we ought to be living up to the standard but no one is perfect because we all sin if we claim we have no sin We are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. Now, when we came to chapter 2, you may have noticed in the first verse, John says, Jesus Christ is the one who is truly righteous. I'm not. Forgive me, but you're not. Jesus Christ is the only one who's truly righteous. So he's the only one who can be our savior. And I've put together a few verses there. John says, in him, Jesus, is no sin. Paul says, he knew no sin. And Peter says, he did no sin. Our Lord was perfect, but I'm not. Our Lord was sinless, but you're not. But our Lord is the only one who is. So that's the second lie that John talks about. The person who says, there's no sin in me. And the third one is that, I have never sinned. If we claim we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar. Now, I don't suppose anybody in this room today would ever call God a liar. You wouldn't do that. You praise his name and you love his name, but you wouldn't call him a liar. You would never do that. But if we claim that we have not sinned, we're calling God a liar and showing that his word has no place in our hearts. But John, even though he's talking a lot about sin and the need for righteous living, he also says that forgiveness is possible and it's immediate. You see, when you confess your sin to Jesus, the forgiveness happens now. You only have to say it once and forgiveness is yours. And that forgiveness is never rescinded, it's never taken back, but there is this proviso we must confess our sins. If we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you'll be tempted. And I'm tempted. We all are. Sometimes people say, oh, the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. Sometimes the devil may tempt you to do it, but you don't have to, as we'll find out. And as believers who aspire to be the men and women that God wants us to be, we want to overcome this temptation. We don't want to sin, and that's because we're born again. The Spirit of God lives in us now. We don't want to sin that way. And so temptation can be defeated. It can't be shunned out of our lives where all face temptation. Sometimes it's to lie, and sometimes it's to be hypocritical, and sometimes it's to be sexually immoral, and sometimes it will be to defraud the government, and so on. The temptations abound, but no of that has to sin, as we'll find out shortly. You may have heard of the name Luis Palau. Luis Palau tells of when he was a young man and he lived in the Argentine. Eventually he became one of the great evangelists. He died just a few years ago. I think it was last year actually. And Palau says he was a young man in the Argentine and he was getting on in life and by that I mean doing well in life. He was working in banking. He spoke English perfectly. He spoke Spanish perfectly. And he said his friends wanted him to go to carnival. Now, he said, I was a young man, and I didn't, know, I didn't want to go to carnival because I know it would lead me into some kind of sin. He said, I'm different now, but in those days when I was young, I didn't like to tell my friends that it would be too tempting for me, so I didn't want to go. And he said, before... He went to sleep that night. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Lord, please help me. I don't want to go to carnival tomorrow, but I'm finding it hard to say no to my friends. He went to sleep. When he woke up in the morning and he put his feet on the floor, he realized there was something different. And he felt his face and he had a fat lip. His lip had gone all fat during the night. So he rang his friends and said, look, I can't go to carnival because I've got a fat lip. They said, oh, come on. Yes, no, I can't go because I've got a fat lip. So he insisted... And he said, it's the only time in life that he's thanked the Lord for a a fat lip. You know, cry out to the Lord. If you find yourself going through a time of temptation, cry out to the Lord. Henry Morehouse was an early brethren evangelist in Britain. And he was a pickpocket before he became a believer. And when he became a great evangelist, but in the early days of his Christian walk, he found that every day he went uptown and went out, he would always put gloves on because if he had gloves on, he couldn't be a pickpocket. And sometimes we have to do things to make sure that we don't revert to the kind of person that we were before we repented. Billy Graham was being interviewed on television, Billy Graham being an evangelist, and he was asked by the interviewer if he had ever been tempted to sin sexually. And Graham was a bit embarrassed, but he told the story of an associate who was holding crusade meetings in Paris. And as he went home after the meeting, he was tempted by the sights of Paris. But he went to his hotel in those days, and they'd have a, a regular old key into the door, and he went into the hotel room and he locked the door and then he threw the key out the window. He couldn't sin. And sometimes ladies and gentlemen, we have to do things to make sure that we don't. A person went to a doctor once and said, Doctor, Doctor, help me. I've broken my arm in two places. What can I do? And the doctor said, don't go to those places. (laughs) You know. And sometimes we just have to restrain. So the first thing is high-sounding words, I have never sinned, there's no sin in me. And John is saying, yes, there is, be careful. The second thing is, there are life-changing possibilities, and I have to go very fast, so I'll just go through here. I have to, point. well, actually, yeah, can we have the next slide, please, Herman? This is quite special to me, because it's special to my, now lamented mother she's with the lord whoever has the son has life whoever does not have god's son does not have life my mother was 33 my father was 40 they went to meetings run by an evangelist called Enoch Coppen and one night my mum came to the lord and my two older brothers came to the lord and later on my father came to the lord and the verse that brought jesus to faith was this whoever has the son has life Whoever does not have God's Son does not have life. And she realized she didn't have God's Son. Gave herself to Christ. Changed her life. Changed the family life. Changed my life. And then John says, I have written this to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's the purpose. You see, he's not writing to make people doubt that they have eternal life. He's writing that they might be assured and know they have eternal life. Now, Jeremy, in his skillful address last Sunday, said there are certain awkward passages in John, but the way that I read it is, John is saying, you are repentant. You're aiming to be the women and men that God wants you to be. Make sure that you just test your life. Are you loving as much as you ought to? Are you forgiving as much as you ought to? Are you as generous as you ought to? So there is these tests. It's sometimes called a testing episode. And so that tests, but we can be sure of those of us who believe in the person of Jesus Christ that we're saved for all time and for all eternity. Now, I'm going very quickly now. The first thing is this if we want to be the kind of men and women that God wants us to be, we must aim high. And he says to us, my dear children, that's the people at Raleigh Street, my dear children, John speaking, I'm writing to this, writing this to you, so that you will not sin. So what John is saying is, you don't have to. I touched on that briefly. But we do. There's an interesting expression in Romans, and it's Paul, and he says that we as believers are dead to sin. It doesn't mean to say that we never have the desire to sin. It simply means that sin has no claim on us. We don't have to anymore because the Spirit of God lives in us. Right. The second thing is look up. We will sin. I mean, as John has been at pains to tell us, we are sinners. Look up. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a helper, who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is a sacrifice that atones for our sins. He brings us back to God. The word atonement is the only English-derived theological word, atonement. And it means at one meant. But that's, by the way, I won't go further into that but we have an advocate and so when we sin Jesus Christ pleads our cause isn't that good that's great and keep on marching so we go forward forward a little bit in his letter and John says dear friends we are already God's children isn't that good We are already God's children. We don't have to wait for it. We're already God. Remember, he's writing that you might know that you have eternal life. And he says, my friends, we are already God's children. We may not be as loving as we ought to be, and we may not be as filled with faith as we ought to be yet, but we are already God's children. But he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears, but we do know that we will be like him for we will see him as he really is. I reckon that's great. We'll be like like our Lord. And I'm sure and hope I won't look like I am, but somehow I'm going to be just like Jesus and so are you. And so when we sin, confess it, Keep on repenting and keep on marching. Don't give up. Let's all pray. We're shortly going to take bread and we're going to take wine in memory of our Lord as he said we should. And now we just want to steady our hearts and be ready to take that bread and to take the cup and to do it in a worthy way as the Bible says we must. But to help us in our prayer, maybe what we have coming up on the screen might help us, or you might like to say words like this. We have our next slide, and it says, Lord, my Lord, you know my heart. You know I want to live a life that pleases you. Please help me now, because I'm wrestling with, Whatever it is, just say it to the Lord. And if you're going to take the bread and wine, you don't have to. If you're not a believer, you shouldn't. But if you are a believer and you take bread and you take wine in memory of Jesus, just say something like this. I take these symbols of Jesus' body and blood as reminders of your Son, committing myself again, to him and so it's a time of rededication but if you've never given your life to Christ pray and just say something like it's Lord I want to leave my life of sin behind and I trust Jesus I know he is God's son I know he died and I know he rose again and just give yourself to Christ so for a few seconds we're going to be quiet and silent as we ready our hearts to take the bread and to take the cup And if you've never accepted the Lord as your Lord, do it now. 20 seconds of silent prayer. We thank you for sending your son thank you that he shed his blood for us thank you that he gave his body for us and we're saved now we're safe now because of all that Jesus did and for all that he is we thank you we thank you for the bread we thank you for the cup and we thank you in the name of your son We rejoice in you, we're safe in you, and we love you. Amen.